Welcome to the Everything Building Envelope podcast. On this show, we discuss topics relating to the exterior building envelope, such as waterproofing, glazing, cladding, roofing, and more. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. For previous episodes, show notes, and bonus video content, check out our website, everythingbuildingenvelope.com. Now, here's your host for the Everything Building Envelope podcast, Paul Beers. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Everything Building Envelope podcast. This is your host, Paul Beers with GCI Consultants. And I'm really excited about today's guest, an old friend, Donald Kipnis. Welcome, Donald. Thank you, Paul. So Donald is the founder and CEO of Development Service Solutions, LLC, which otherwise known as DSS. I've worked with Donald a lot, known him for a long time. We've, we've worked together on construction projects, existing buildings, things like that. Donald, maybe you tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Sure, Paul. Uh, I have degrees in both science and building construction. My father was a mechanical engineer. And in 1982, I went to work for a local general contractor and ended up purchasing the company in an LBO, a leveraged buyout, in 1985. My partner and I ran the company until 2004 when I joined a local developer. After about two and a half years of facing the onset of a downward development cycle, I started my consulting company, Development Service Solutions, with the goal of representing developers, hoteliers, and anyone else who would have me. I ran solo for many years, but in the past three years, have doubled the size of the company each year. And I'm happy to say we're now 16 people as of last week. Over half of our team has master's degrees in architecture, but we actually don't design. Two of our team members are attorneys, but we don't practice law. Two are general contractors, but we don't act as a contractor. We actually have one individual who has a master's degree in real estate development, but we don't develop properties. We support developers. And we have one professional quantity surveyor And yes, we do verify values and quantities. So now we're in a position where we see projects from beginning to end through the entire acquisition, design, procurement, contracting, and development uh, construction cycle and delivery, which puts us in a position to give specific input at different phases of the project and bring value to our clients. What are some of the kind of projects that you are, you can name them or not, however you choose. What are some of the kind of projects that you, you have been working on the last few years? We have been fortunate to work on projects such as the surf club in Surfside, the uh, Carlton Betsy hotel on ocean drive. We were the owner's rep for 1111 Lincoln Road, the Clevelander Hotel. We are currently on Ransom Everglades doing their STEM and La Brisa buildings. We're working on the Cisneros property, which are luxury homes on Douglas Road. We're in Wynwood doing Wynwood Park. Uh, We recently finished Eve, 
which is a 195 unit uh, multifamily, 62,000 feet of black box retail, and we did that job together. Yep. Uh, we're on Lincoln Road doing retail. We finished 530 Lincoln Road. We're on 800 Lincoln Road, and we're looking at Park Central Hotel. We're working on that, which is a redevelopment of four buildings, as well as the South Seas Hotel on 17th and, and uh, Collins. Yeah, so I can see how things have been uh, been growing rapidly and, and doubling in size. Sounds like you're keeping very busy. Dive into the project management and actually owner representation. And how, what would you call it? I mean, if if, if you were going to give somebody the elevator pitch, what would what would you call what you do? We represent our clients' best interests by adding value through proper design procurement and execution of their development project. So let's dive into the design part. I know, I know we've talked about this before, and one of your really cool terms, I think, is you say things are broken by design. Can you talk about that a little? Sure. This is something I'm passionate about because there's so many places to go wrong in the development process. So we look at it as either broken in the design on the plans or broken in the relation between the parties, which is typically done by choosing the wrong team or in the contract documents themselves. And I'll give examples of, of each of it. So if something's broken by design, a good example was 1111 Lincoln Road, where an, a structural engineer came into town was used to designing bridges and highly complex uh, structures, made a structure that cost twice as much money as what we know how to build here, which is a reinforced concrete post-tension structure. When we converted the hybrid steel design to a typical structure for South Florida, reinforced concrete post-tension, we saved 50% on the cost of the building and several months on the timeline. So that's a simple broken by design. And it can happen in air conditioning systems where we just had a, a very simple design charrette with an HVAC engineer on a 36-story building, and he was putting in hot water for the cooling tower. And we said, well, why don't you just use heat strips and heat pumps for cooling? And we changed the design and saved a lot of money. So um, even if you low bid something which is designed expensively, it costs more than negotiating something which is designed efficiently and effectively. And that is a concept that we have been able to successfully communicate to our clients. And we have many more case studies of that. When we look at broken by uh, contract, it might be that there isn't a proper termination clause dealing with a contractor or that the owner in its design agreements didn't get their copyright use of the plans done properly in that provision and the architect owns the sole use of the design that the developer or owner has paid for. So that can create problems for the developer along the line. 
And then how about the relationships? So there are two ways to build. I think in the governmental section, we find that everything is low bid and it becomes adversarial and it's uh, a contractor has to make his money through claims and change orders. And that's the antithesis of what we want to do. What we try to build teams of people that want to work together, that respect each other, and respect the value of the other party. And by doing that, uh, it's a much more effective job. It typically costs less, you get better quality work, and it's delivered faster with less claims. So Donald, I think back to one of the early jobs that, that you and I worked in with um, DSS, Yacht Harbor and Coconut Grove, and that was way over-designed and, and you know, had a lot of things that you're talking about. You went in really, really brilliantly, I think, and got things sorted out. We were fortunate enough to be involved as well. And, you know, we took a basically project that was over budget and they didn't have the money and all this kind of stuff and got it all sorted out and did a really good job with it, brought contractors in, everybody was on the same team, you know, good relationships, all that. And ultimately they were delivered a really quality project that was affordable, you know, a really good example of all this. Yeah, that was great for, for everyone involved. All of the relationships are intact with the team that was there. Um, we were able to simply uh, bifurcate what was a contract with a major sub working under the contractor into two separate contracts with a cooperation provision in the contracts. So it was multiple prime with the association and the initial general contractor removed his 10% markup on a $2 million subcontract. And that simple mechanism of having two contracts saved the association $200,000. So it's just knowing what to do and when to do it that results in great efficiencies. And it worked beautifully. It, it really worked well there. To say that there were no change orders wouldn't be the truth, but everything was managed well. In the rebid of that job, we saved over a million dollars. And by the end of the job, the Condominium Association was able to replace a million dollars of glass windows that they had never intended to replace. So that was a really wonderful outcome for the homeowners who ultimately you know, pay the bills for these uh, condominium repairs. So let's talk a little bit about how independent third party representation, the benefits that are passed on to professional owners or associations and project management. We're able to bundle the skills of analyzing logistics, business terms of contracts, scope of work, schedule analysis, how to optimize schedules, alternate schedules, scrutinize design, and create competitive RFPs, requests for proposal for pricing, for design, for construction, all under one operation so that our clients get best value and 
the best product in the end. And we've done that by having expertise in our company. We have development expertise that runs pro formas for financial analysis. I do contracts and design. We can take a simple item. I'm going to give an example. And the project is Mirador on West Avenue, where they designed a rail repair, a supplemental railing system that the fire department was requiring the association to put in their building four stairwells, 16 stories each. The architect designed them. It went out to competitive bid, and it came in at $135,000. Our team looked at that rail design, and I gave them a challenge. I said, how many ways can you design that railing in 10 minutes that is more effective, more efficient than the way it's designed now? In 10 minutes, we had about six different designs. We picked a hybrid of a couple of them. We put it out to bid, and at the end of the day, saved $60,000, and the building department and the fire department accepted the repair. That's a significant, some significant dollars. For a simple item. And there yeah. are hundreds of these items throughout a job, hundreds. Let's dive into some of these things that you just mentioned, um, logistics. So what, what are some logistical type of things that you can do to benefit owners and associations? It's critical for an owner and a contractor and the design professionals to understand how a job is going to get built. Typically, we prepare phased logistic plans that show the use of sidewalks, easements, how cranes come on and off of the job, which towers or areas are repaired first, second, civil engineering work, underground work, so that there is a clear roadmap, a visual roadmap of how the project's going to be built. Many times we do that ourselves and put it out in the RFP package to get feedback from the contractors and to help guide them to be more efficient in their pricing of the project. And that lowers the price and makes a job be delivered faster. And time, of course, is not only is it money, but if the building's occupied, then the, the disruption is shorter. So, you know, it's a big benefit to the, the users or occupants of the building as well. Well, it's critical if you're on a drop of balconies in an existing condominium, and we're on several, Mirador, Nine Island Avenue, uh, we're doing Grove Isle, their sculpture decks, we're out at Key Colony on their, their pool building, their HOA lap pool building, and the residents want us out as fast as possible. So logistics and manpower and sequencing of the work is the critical factor in getting in and getting out, understanding it from the onset and managing it, uh, being nimble as things sometimes change is fundamental to one of the aspects of what we do. So something that seems kind of innocuous, you talk about contract. What can be done with contracts to help the process? Contracts, to me, 
are like tools in a toolbox. And if you don't have the right tools in the toolbox, you can't build your project. There are times you need a hammer, there are times you need a screwdriver, and there are times you need a razor knife. By understanding contract provisions and how they work and working carefully with the association or developer's attorney, we craft documents that are very effective for our client that mitigate change orders that only allow the most appropriate types of change orders, not those for coordination, that mitigate uh, delay expenses that allow an owner to make a change of a contractor when necessary, and sometimes it's necessary, or to supplement contractors' resources. And all of this is very effective when dealing with design professionals and contractors, because by it being there, in and of itself, it's a tool. It doesn't have to be used. Everyone knows the tools that are in the, the toolbox and tend to perform better knowing that they're there. Do you ever see the same correctable issues happening over and over? We do. And they can happen in a contract. One we see is uh, ownership of documents. The other that we see is improper termination for convenience clauses. We see owners allowing contractors to bill on a schedule of values rather by invoices, which are carefully checked. We see waterproofing detail problem. We see issues where someone just wants to clean a surface instead of take it down to you know, the proper concrete uh, level of finish. It's remarkable how the same mistakes are made again and again. Remarkable. Yeah, you know, the one that you've mentioned a couple of times, ownership of documents. I mean, to me, so I don't necessarily live in that world as much as you do, but to me, that just seems like a no-brainer. I mean, if I'm paying for it, I don't think I should, that somebody else should own it. Right, but the reason that architects want to own it is if they get in a dispute with their client, they have leverage. There should at least be co-ownership, and to the extent that an architect is paid, or, or an engineer, the, the party paying should have the right to use those documents and should collect them, should collect electronic and paper files. And if, when they finish the, the design development phase, they should own all of those electric documents and have them in their possession. Yep, makes perfect sense. So when things maybe aren't, aren't going as well, as we might like, maybe coming into an existing project that's already got some players in place. What, what happens when you have to replace a contractor? I mean, well, I guess I should ask this first. Do you ever have to replace contractors? And if yes, what happens? Well, we've actually replaced, uh, we, we've administered the replacement of contractors, of engineers, of architects, because the reality is it doesn't always work out perfectly. And I believe a lot of it is cooked into the structure initially of the deal. That's back to broken by design. But when we're brought on a job that is in trouble, 
We look for the reasons why it's in trouble and try to address what is dysfunctional. If a contract has proper provisions in it, it makes it easier to address either supplementing or changing an architect, engineer, or contract. If it doesn't, if there isn't a proper termination for convenience, if the owner doesn't own their documents, if they've overpaid and are upside down, if the job wasn't bonded with payment and performance bonds, you have to get a lot more creative and it really depends on the exact circumstances to craft an appropriate solution. And it takes working with the developer or the ownership entity, their construction attorney and, and ourselves. And candidly, whoever a party, whichever party or parties is troubling on the job, you end up working with them also. So. Are there alternatives to, to replacing a contractor? If, you know, I mean, can these things sometimes be worked out or maybe sometimes you just can't replace them? Yes. Um, we just started a project where we actually supplemented the contractor's staff with appropriate staff so that the contractor could perform better. And the contractor recognized the issue uh, but was unable to cure it themselves and welcomed the help. Are you seeing more issues like that now that things are so busy in South Florida? I think there will be more issues on a subcontractor level than on a contractor level, and that subcontractor default insurance and payment and performance bonds at both the contractor and subcontractor level are critical for a developer. A developer can't have SDI insurance on a contractor level, but they can add payment and performance bonds. And for the cost, which may be a point of the construction cost or a half a point of the development cost, it is money well spent. Are you saying contractors or subs these days that are they're having labor issues as far as you know, not just body counts, but getting qualified folks to do what needs to be done? Uh, yeah, My, Miami is still growing. And even though projects like Brickell City Center are finished and the condominium boom has somewhat cooled off, the multifamily is booming. There's retail being uh, built and other types of projects. The remediation business is taken off like wildfire. So there's always, I believe in Miami, going to be a stress on the available resources. And Hurricane Irma, there's a lot of work going on as a result of that. I was in, um, in the Florida Keys last week and roofing contractor, well, I was, I was looking at a project that had some damage and the, the owner was telling me that the roofing contractor wasn't having the best of days. He spilled something in the parking lot, had to clean it up. And then he said he had to call the police to have half of his workforce removed. So <laughs> obviously there's, in that business, having a really hard time getting people, you know, they're, they're doing body counts and it's not working out so well. Oh, I, I agree. When 
we did work for Andrew, which is many years ago. We brought in roofers from Georgia and we bought the roofing products directly by the semi-load and was able to solve the issue that way. We bought labor separately from materials. We joined them together. Everything came from out of state. So there are resourceful ways to deal with it. We're having issues. We're on several projects and simply having issues getting them adjusted. Yeah, that's a whole other topic with the property insurers and how, they, um, how they're handling claims, which the reputation is not good at this point. And I think it's deserved. Let's I talk agree. about bidding versus best value. Is, is the low bid the, the necessarily the lowest cost? Well, a great example was earlier in this uh, podcast when I talked about the railing. The key to getting best value is to have the best design. And the best design really isn't done in a vacuum. It's done collectively through having an open mind and looking at all, different alternatives to solve the same problem. We're doing a job on Kane Concourse with Architectonica, and they showed a uh, very large cantilever. And we had a discussion about it, and they came up with a very creative solution by hiding some columns in sculpture and in the storefront, which effectively made the cantilever go away structurally but look like a cantilever. And it's based on having these great conversations with creative people, identifying the issue, and then solving the problem on paper. Now, when that goes out to bid, it will be best value. Had it have been designed as originally conceived if no one said anything, even though it was a low bid, it would have cost easily a million dollars more. But they were, Architectonica was so great to work with to solve the problem, it was effortless. Design's critical. Yeah, so let's walk through that a little bit. So what got you to that point? And, you know, when were you guys involved? And, you know, where was, what stage was the project? So how did that opportunity present itself, I guess is what I'm trying to say. We were hired at the onset, which is actually the best time to engage us. And during schematic design, while we were running with the developer of financial pro formas, we were looking at floor plans, elevations, and sections of the building. When we looked at the elevation with a particular section, and remember, this is very preliminary. There's stick drawings. We noticed this significant cantilever raised the issue, and Architectonica came up with a design solution right away that was accepted by the owner. It became a feature. At what point would it have been too late had, had you not been involved as early? I'd say once you start the construction documents, it's too late to change design. Value analysis or value engineering uh, needs to take place first in schematic design and at the latest during design development because when you're in CDs, you're gonna be changing the knobs on the cabinet doors or the cabinets, but you're not gonna be making fundamental changes to the engineering of the structure or the systems of the building. It's too late. 
Well, so many times you see these projects though, where, you know, they go through the whole design phase, they get into, you know, bidding or final pricing or whatever. Then they've suddenly back into value engineering because, you know, they've blown the budget. Well, you know, that's interesting because we believe there are two ways to approach a project. You either build to a design, you budget to the design, or you design to a budget. Now, our clients like a project that's designed to budget because they have to financially work. So we establish a realistic budget that works with their pro forma, with their investment and yield, and we validate that budget with a schematic RFP. We actually take the dream plans and put them out to several contractors who respond. And as a result, the budget is validated, adjusted if necessary. A contractor is selected out of that group and engaged under a pre-construction agreement to work to keep the project in budget, which are dollars well spent. And typically, when that contractor builds the project in budget, the owner is rebated the pre-construction fees that it was initially charged during the pre-construction phase by the contractor. It's a win-win. Yeah, because, you know, I mean, my spin on this is that after the fact value, nothing good happens with after the fact value engineering. And we, we work on projects early on and you get to the end and all of a sudden they're taking out, say, the, the fluid applied waterproofing on the exterior walls because they're going to save $80,000. And they make generally make stupid decisions in the quest to save money and, and, you know, and probably make the project viable with the resources that they have. Yeah, but what happens is to make that repair later on could be $500,000. No, no, that's, that's exactly right. I mean, that's um, pay me now or pay me a lot more later, I think, is basically what that boils down to. Yeah, so our goal is to design the budget. That is the song we sing and the life we live, and we are pleased to bring that message to everyone and participate in it. So let's talk a little bit more about contractor and, you know, big, big issue these days on sites and, well, it's always been, but but even still, and I think it probably gets more and more difficult sometimes, is insurance and bonding. What's going on with that these days? So an owner needs to protect themselves through insurance policies, and there are two basic areas to deal with. One are payment and performance bonds, which is the world of surety, and that protects the title of the property, that's the payment bond, and the performance bond ensures the terms and conditions of the contract, and the surety, which is an insurance company of type, is essentially guaranteeing that it will finish the job on behalf of the contractor if the contractor fails, if the contractor is declared in default. So obviously the default language in a contract is critical and works hand in glove with having a performance bond. The insurance for a project covers multiple layers, the owner's liability, the contractor's liability, the design professionals need both a general liability excess and professional liability you can get what are called wrap policies they're expensive 
that cover everyone. I don't recommend a wrap worker comp policies, but we've found that wrap general liability policies called OSIPs, an owner controlled insurance program, is very effective in saving money and mitigating liability for an owner. And it provides, in many cases, a 10-year tail-end coverage for an owner, which is a great feature. So we want to make sure that there's automobile insurance by the contractor and the sub, and that the waiver of subrogation, which is a simple concept, is implemented throughout the levels of the project, benefit of the owner. OSIP is something that I see a lot of times when I get involved in expert witness and whatnot, the, the, the OSEP guy shows up, and he's always the, uh, the big player because he seems like he's representing most of the people in the room if there's a lot of parties. So it helps the owner, obviously, stabilize their risk. Does it help the contractor and the subs as well? Candidly, it's somewhat of a pain for the contractor because it requires them to administer with an OSIP administrator who typically works for the party that sold the OSIP program to the owner, like Wells Fargo, for example, might sell a Zurich policy and they have an administrator, but the contractor has to help administer it. So um, contractors think it's a little bit of a pain, but on the other hand, it protects the contractor because by contract, the owner is saying that they're taking on the liability. To me, that seems like a win. That's a win. I think it's a little bit of pain to get out of a lot of liability for a contractor and for the enrolled subcontractors. It's a win for them too. And, and the quid pro quo is that the contractor and the subcontractors give back money. And because they're buying liability insurance in little pieces, their rate is higher than the owner buying it collectively as a big purchase. And the owner saves money. The premium is lower and they get better coverage. They get wrapped coverage. So speaking of wins, you know, we look at everything we've talked about today, and I don't, it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting and good way to approach and, and to look at projects. I know I've been impressed and a fan of what you're doing for quite a while. And, you know, getting everything kind of all under one roof and having, a, you know, a team that can address all the issues, not just some of them, but that's where the problems happen, I think is obviously, you know, you, you've demonstrated the benefit of, of that. Well, thank you, Paul. We've spent many years growing together in this industry, and we all bring invaluable knowledge to our clients with the goal of bringing extra value to the work that we perform, to the services we provide. And it's fun being involved with a good team. It really is. If people want to learn about development service solutions, where do they uh, where do they find that? We have a website. It's a www.dssconsultants.com, or they can actually call me on my cell phone. Dare I give my cell phone number? Go ahead. Seven eight six two zero one two eight seven zero. Seven eight six two zero one two eight seven zero. 
and we'd be happy to have a conversation or to meet and discuss what we do and how we do it and how we can apply it to your project and your success. Great. Well, really interesting conversation. Donald, thank you so much for, for coming on and, and sharing your wisdom with the listeners today. Well, I thank you, Paul. And, and candidly, we are passionate about what we do. We love what we do. And so, you know, getting paid for it is, is almost like icing on the cake because every project we're involved in is fascinating. It's rewarding. We enjoy working with a variety of different people. It's just a lot of fun doing that. And need I say more? No, no, and that's really great. It's really great. So that's what makes it fun is actually, um, actually, as you say, being passionate about it, not not just going through the motions. And obviously, that passion, you know, shows through on the other side with with the customer and the project team getting best value. So. I guess that concludes this episode. I thank everyone for listening to Everything Building Envelope. Please tell your friends about it at everythingbuildingenvelope.com. You can also listen on iTunes or Stitcher. Before I say goodbye, the opportunity to give a small plug for my company, GCI Consultants. I've got a bunch of new videos out regarding Hurricane Irma, um, water infiltration, things like that. So you can find them on our website, gciconsultants.com, and also on YouTube, the GCI Consultants YouTube channel. So check them out. And with that, until next time, this is Paul Beer saying so long. Thanks for joining us today. Please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. For more information on the Everything Building Envelope, Previous episodes, show notes, bonus video content, and much more, check out our website, everythingbuildingenvelope.com.